What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 144 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to don't be a jerk. Don't answer the question first. Not answer the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing beardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over some follow-up, talk about a news item, and then dive into an in-depth review of the movie, The Ghosts in Our Machine. That's right, Paul. It's the return of the retro film review. <laughs> when, uh, but the, I was about to ask when this film came out, Andy, but I guess all questions will be answered in due time. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. I, I, it came out in 2013 or 2014. I, I guess that's retro. Not, not as retro. It's not a contemporary film. I guess, yeah. People might be wondering, why are you reviewing this film that came out four to five years ago? And that's because we did our little retro film review winter break series back in December, January. And we both thought it was great. It gave us a chance to revisit older films. We recorded a bunch of episodes all in one or two, three three days, something like that. And then just released them over the course of six weeks. We thought it was great, but then we concluded that it was it was too long to go, Paul, without recording a new episode <laughs> for, you know, we felt so out of date. We felt out of the loop and we decided it would be nice to just sort of sprinkle these in throughout the year whenever a time comes up when we need a break or we need to record something in advance. And I'm going to be doing a bunch of travel. I'm headed out to Colorado. Uh, by the time you hear this, I probably will have already come back from Colorado. And Paul, <laughs> you, you are starting an exciting new life endeavor as well. Yes, I'll be tomorrow, Andy, at the time of this recording, tomorrow I'll be making my way to Delaware, making my way down Delaware, I don't know, (laughs) and uh, starting my math PhD program. So it doesn't start for about another month, but there's basically a month of rigorous, like, revamp classes. Like I'm doing, I'm basically every single day I'll be taking going through an older math class i don't know why am i talking about math right now andy this doesn't (laughs) this doesn't pertain to the podcast but basically i have a month of pre-courses and then it starts the actual course but i'll be busy supposedly from 9 a.m to 6 p.m doing math every day so doesn't leave much time for (laughs) podcasting but we'll figure something out So this is our this is us attempting to make sure we still get something out every week because we have not broken that streak in a very very long time. So we're we're doing our best. We got a good combo going. Yeah. <laughs> so Andy, let's get into this episode. Even though we just recorded an episode yesterday, you've got something new to eat. What yeah, you, what you, know, you have this morning. I had to leave New York City very early because of street cleaning, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm up early. And I'm not that far from my one of my favorites, Orchard Grocer, who I'm, I'm pretty sure I must have raved about them on the podcast at some point. But I think they're overdue for another shout out. And they are an all vegan grocery store slash deli sandwich spot in New York City. They are an extension of Mushu, so that's an all vegan shoe store, and they're both right next to each other. So you can you walk in there, you go to the back. They have about eight to ten sandwiches you can choose from, and 
while they are making your sandwich, you can go look around their store, do a little grocery shopping, or go check out some vegan shoes. I have to say, something that I really love about this market is that they, in addition to obviously making sure everything that's in the store is vegan, they also make sure everything is palm oil free. And again, I know we're overdue for a palm oil episode, but for those that are trying to avoid it, I think that's really awesome that you don't have to think about it. And then I also recently learned that the only chocolate items that they'll carry have been approved by the Food Empowerment Project. So that's sort of like another little ethical add-on to the whole vegan thing that that they just take care of for you. So it was great. I got to pick up some Charm School chocolate. It's one of my all-time favorite vegan chocolate brands. They make this incredible white chocolate. And I, I got a sandwich. I got the Bowery, which is their breakfast sandwich, which has tofu egg and tempeh bacon and some Violife cheese and spicy mayo and... Ah, it's just so good. It's it's a really good spot. Every time I've been in there, all the employees are just super nice and friendly and, and love chatting about whatever delicious food you're picking up. And I, I got some snacks as well, too, Paul, including those Kelly's croutons. Oh, Kelly's croutons are great. I, I think I've only been in Orchard Grocer once. And for some reason, I, I noticed the deli, but I don't think I was like oh, I'm going to get some food. I don't know why, but I didn't feel like I needed to get a sandwich or something there. And now I deeply regret it because I really want to go back in. Yeah, they have a lot of really good sandwiches. I also picked up their, I forget what it's called, but it's basically their version of a Cubano sandwich, which I picked up for later because I figured that would that would keep well. But yeah, I think you're really missing out if you don't go grab a sandwich and have them make that while you're doing your shopping because they, the food, I don't know, it's just really good. I've never had anything bad from them, so... Orchard Grocer in New York City are really, really doing it up right. I love the fact that they're sort of planting their flag and, and making sure they only get products that are sourced ethically from a number of different angles. And I wonder if they'll find some other thing that they can start uh, weeding out companies from as well. But they also they have a huge selection of vegan cheeses and meats and tons of brands that I have never seen before. So it's really fun to explore and just see what you can find. You know, Andy, at the beginning of this, you're talking about Orchard Grocery. You said something about like a walk-in or you walked in, and it made me think, what if Joaquin Phoenix went to a walk-in clinic that was run by Christopher Walken, and they would be Joaquin walks in, wa- walk-ins, walk-in clinic? <laughs> Put that on a shirt. <laughs> Put it on a shirt. All right, Andy. Uh, <laughs> now, now that I got that out of my system, I thought of it and I was like, I need to tell this to Andy. But, I was like waiting for you to pull it all together and and chef kiss. Marvelous. <laughs> Joaquin walks in, walk-ins, walk-in clinic. <laughs> Very nice. There we that's, go. Uh, that's up there with Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Oh, love that. Which One is... of my favorite pieces of the Eng- English language. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complete sentence. Go, go ahead and look it up. Anyway, Paul, we just released our episode about your visit to the Wild Animal Sanctuary. And I have to say, actually, this, this is an episode that has already garnered more email responses than the average episode. And for us, it's only been out for less than 24 hours in terms of the normal release, unless you're one of those special beardos that gets the early access but uh, we got a really interesting email we appreciate all the emails we've gotten about it but i think we got a particularly interesting one from matthew yeah so there was actually another email or two that i think we're going to be using we're going to utilize for a future episode but this one i think was perfect for follow-up it had an element to it it asked a question that that we didn't get to so i thought it might be worth discussing so yeah matthew emailed in basically saying that they had been to the wild animal sanctuary a couple times had like 
a different experience every time in terms of it being open to the public. I know they said it like was it op- it wasn't open to the public, and then it was, and then it was only open for like the the like donors of the of the sanctuary and then it was open to the public again at a different price so it seems like it's gone through different iterations which i think is interesting but then matthew also mentioned how it wasn't until the second time they visited that they served food and not have like like we discussed andy not having any vegan options was certainly odd and it was odd to matthew as well and then they went on to talk about how there was even a story that the animal sanctuary put out about some hobby farmer who donated a couple of alpacas to the sanctuary in order to feed the animals. But then they ended up keeping the alpacas as if to be like, Oh, look how, you know, it's like, look how great we are. We're not going to kill these alpacas that we got, even though they're killing tons of other animals in order to feed people that are going there. So then let me pick up on Matthew's email from there. Then you take that information and the food they serve as concessions and you follow that down the mental road and you have to ask, what does it take to feed hundreds of carnivores every day? What are they feeding lions and bears fenced in on the prairie? You have to assume it's farm animals. Even conservative math would reach the conclusion that it would take hundreds of cows or other large farm animals to feed these rescue animals every day. How many cow lives is a lion's life worth? That was my questioning anyways. After I became comfortable with the understanding that veganism is more about opposing exploitation than necessarily opposing animals' death, I stopped supporting the wild animal sanctuary. I don't know what should happen to the animals there. I just kind of came to the uneasy conclusion that we have to admit that we, as humans, have failed a lot of animals and it's going to cost them their lives. We have to do better going forward. We have to do better to educate and change minds, but we can't prop up one animal's life in captivity, even the best captive option, at the expense of exploiting thousands more. I don't get mad at people, even vegans, who have a different view and support places like this sanctuary. I recognize my views on it are super idealistic, but it's the conclusion I've reached. I'd be curious what you guys think. Wow. <laughs> so I will say, I will say this. I'll start out by saying this because there's there's 100% a, an amazing discussion to be, I don't know if amazing is the right word, a great discussion to be had from this. However, I will say in terms of the bears, pretty sure they just feed them fruit because there's just these, it, in both the the welcoming video that they show, and I actually saw this going by one of the bear, the fenced-in bear areas, the barriers, that there was just <laughs> this like, this, Andy, a truly monumental amount pile of fruit it's just like this giant pile of fruit and so i'm pretty sure that that's what they feed the bears i don't know if they supplement them with other stuff maybe they do supplement them with animals i'm not sure or maybe like the grizzly bears need need i i andy i don't know that much about bears but maybe the grizzly bears need meat and the like the black and brown bears don't but i know for at least the black bears i saw these giant mounds of fruit but i believe most, if not all, bears are omnivores. So, I don't know. Maybe someone can correct me on that. We're not going to Google it. <laughs> Send your letters to <laughs> at gmail.com. We refuse! <laughs> but, but I did totally see that the, like, the lions were being fed these basically... Just picture a, a, a giant hockey puck that's made out of frozen meat. That mm. is essentially what they were being fed. And, yeah, you have to, like... Matthew came to the conclusion you have to assume that this is this is farm animals that are that are going towards feeding these lions and I don't know there's definitely a discussion to be had Andy because from a number standpoint it it doesn't make sense it I feel like it's it, it's it's 
not responsible for us to be killing a hundred or hundreds of animals over the lifetime of what this one lion has to eat in order to keep that lion alive. But I don't know if it throws a wrench in the works to to say like, well, this animal is an endangered animal, or maybe there aren't that many of this animal left. And does that give the animal more worth? Do, do, should we sacrifice more lives to keep that one animal alive? Like if, and, and you could also say, well, the, the tiger is, or the lion is in this, in this sanctuary right now. And for, I feel like for most of these animals, they're not able to, leave the sanctuary just because they've they've been in captivity their entire lives but like would it be a different story if if we said oh we are able to release this lion back into the wild because then that lion's gonna go out and kill you know kill just as many animals you would think or an equivalent a relatively equivalent amount of animals in the wild as they would be in this sanctuary so does that make it different does it make it different that we're killing the animals for the lion versus that same lion going out and killing the animals for themselves well you just asked about four really big questions paul (laughs) (laughs) so let me try to respond to them The first is that this reminds me of the episode we did about whether or not vegans should have companion animals. And part of that discussion was, well, what about these obligate carnivores that must consume the flesh of another animal in order to survive? And I guess for me personally, it's one of those things where... I, I maybe I'm I'm a coward. I sort of duck out of it by saying I'm probably never going to have an a companion animal that requires meat. But maybe that's just sort of dodging. Maybe that's really just sort of dodging the question. But yeah, I don't know if I can like honestly justify the amount of animals have to die to keep say one like a cat alive. Although there are the people out there who say that you can have healthy vegan cats at the vegetarian summer fest that I was just at there's little signs up for people that wanted to come to some meetup some vegan cat meetup where people that have been doing it will explain to you how to do it i see the folks at vegancats.com even saying you shouldn't feed your cat fully vegan so it seems like it's the type of thing that unless you can devote an extreme amount of time and attention to your cat it's not really it's not really something the average person can do and and devote themselves to maybe maybe i'm wrong on that send send again send us your emails beardvegans at gmail.com <laughs> so for me personally i don't honestly know that i can justify the animals that have to die in order for like a cat to be to be alive but i have nothing bad to say about someone that does decide does that mental math and then decides that they do need to keep said cat alive with the death of other animals i also know that like a cat a small house cat will eat significantly less animal flesh than say a lion does and so if you went out of your way to only feed your cat cow's flesh i would venture to guess that the amount of cows have to die over the lifetime for that one cat is pretty low but still probably greater than one has to be greater than one but what they're eating just a few ounces of of flesh per meal so it it would take a very long time i think to go through a full cow but yes i think still it's a grisly thought but yes still, still <laughs> yeah still greater than one would have to have to die right so 
I don't know because the other the other side of that is well the the animals that we're taking in like of course as vegans we don't believe anyone should purchase from a breeder should purchase an animal that's been bred specifically to be a companion animal but we think that there are, are great altruistic reasons to rescue an animal to adopt an animal that has been dumped at a shelter for instance and we sort of view that as us responding to and taking responsibility for a situation that we as humans have created, which is we've been breeding these animals. We've been allowing them to overpopulate and, and it's like our duty to take them in and care for them because we created this problem. So I guess people could say the exact same thing about these lions, because if I remember correctly, right, Paul, they were, they were rescued from roadside attractions and, and private, collectors in their homes and, and things of that nature. Yeah, that was I think the most most of the animals that were there. Yeah, people could say the exact same argument for those animals that are being bred in order to be fed to these animals. Like this is a problem and we need to take responsibility for that by not continuing to kill them, not continuing to breed them. So so I feel like that's sort of my thoughts on the first part of your question. The second part, which is is it different if these animals are endangered? I, I'm trying to decide if I think there's anything inherently valuable about a species being around just to have the species around. I don't know if I have a solid answer or opinion on that. Maybe like to preserve an ecosystem? Yeah, but there, it's not an ecosystem that's being preserved inside of these sanctuaries, from what I could tell. If they're being that's separated into different true. pens and being fed food from the outside. Like, like Paul, if they were to, the, the final thing that you brought up, if they were to be released into the wild, back into their natural habitat, then perhaps that is the case. But if they're just being trucked in, this flesh that's being farmed specifically for them, that's not them being a part of some specific circle of life or food chain. That's this artificial thing that we've created in order to keep these animals alive because we view their lives as more valuable than that of the cow or the chicken or the pig that they're being fed. I guess you could, I guess you could say though, that this is different than like a zoo in the sense that the people that are working for this sanctuary, like if they, if they truly have altruistic reasons to be, to be creating these sanctuaries or participating in, in volunteering and stuff in these sanctuaries, they would want this, like, they would want to not have this sanctuary, you know? It's like, I feel like it should be the goal of every farm sanctuary or wild animal sanctuary that this becomes something that is no longer needed in the future. Uh-huh. Like, hopefully, like, we would get to a point where it's like, there won't be these roadside attractions with animals, there won't be zoos, there won't be poachers, so then we would no longer need a place to rescue these animals. And maybe that makes it different, like, if... If we are doing things that truly awesome, in addition to the sanctuary, because as we talked about last week, I I don't, or a few weeks ago, as we talked about whenever that animal sanctuary episode went up, (laughs) I I don't know that this animal, this particular wild animal sanctuary was doing enough education work in order to actually tackle the problem that was the reason why they even had animals there, but if they were, or more broadly, just speaking about animal sanctuaries in general, if they are doing this work, then it's not like a, they are not there as a long-term band-aid for this issue. Like they are there as like a temporary placeholder for the animals that we've put into these scenarios 
knowing that hopefully we will get to a place where this is something that's no longer needed. So, so maybe, I, I don't know, Andy, maybe that makes it more acceptable that we're doing this because it's like, yes, this is, it's, it's, we have to kill animals. We have to do bad stuff to uphold, like to, to as upkeep for this, for this place. But eventually we will not need to do that. So I, I don't know if that makes it better, but for me, I don't know. Maybe it justifies it a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can see any true justification for any of the the, the shit you know that we put animals through on either side of this. So I think I kind of fall in line with Matthew, which is. I guess I'm not upset at, at people that choose to support these types of sanctuaries or choose to not, you know, to, to support them or whatever it is. But for me, it's just like not something that I can support. Like I have to almost take this, this like neutral position of, I don't think that these lions deserve to die, but I also don't think that the cows deserve to die to feed the lion. And again, maybe that's sort of this like cowardly position to take, but I just sort of step back and opt out and I say, I'm just going to work on making new vegans so that that none of these situations have to exist. Like there won't be these roadside attractions and et cetera. And, and I guess that the last question that I asked, do you think there is a meaningful difference between the animals killed and fed to a lion in the sanctuary versus if that lion was let it back into the wild, the animals that would be killed by that lion? Well, I think that generally speaking, as vegans, we we recognize that nature is red of tooth and claw, and what wild <laughs> animals go through is absolutely horrendous and pretty brutal. Yeah, and some would say either on par with, or in some situations, maybe even worse than what certain animals go through in agriculture. I don't know. I don't know how strongly I feel about that argument, but you know, when you see footage of another animal killing an animal slowly <laughs> in the wild. It's pretty brutal. It is yeah. pretty brutal. So I think that as vegans, our position is sort of that we should not cause suffering. Like we should not be directly causing suffering as much as possible, as possible. And <laughs> we, we, we realize, we recognize that we won't be able to stop any and all suffering in the world, but we have to do our best to remove ourselves from our contribution to said suffering. So, I mean, I guess someone could argue that, well, by releasing this tiger into the wild, you are knowingly sentencing some number of animals to a brutal tiger-based death. (laughs) (laughs) Tiger-based. So, I don't know. Great, great band name, Paul. Uh, (laughs) So, I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, this is something that I'm really torn on that I can't, I, I I see both sides of, of this situation. I'm sure there's more than two sides, but I can see both reasonings and rationale for saying that the t- the lion deserves to be fed these cows versus these cows deserve to not be fed to this lion. And for me personally, it's just comes down to, I don't think that this sanctuary is one that I would support. You know, Andy, I, I I gave a little giggle when you said nature is red of tooth and nail because you haven't said that in a while, but I feel like that's one of your rarely used catchphrases because you've said that many times on this podcast. It's uh, Well, nature is red of tooth and claw is not an original Andyism, But you have said it quite a bit. 
Yeah, this is true. Droopy is Dog true. is it's... not an original Andyism either. <laughs> <laughs> the you know actually where that phrase come from? A poem where? by Charles Darwin. Interesting. Yeah. Would you like to recite it for us? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that's all we're going to say for this follow up. Then, um, Matthew, thanks for emailing that that in. That was a that was a good addition to the the conversation that we had. So. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that emailed in about this yeah. or anything else. Yeah, we love hearing all the things that we missed, of which we're sure there are multiple things per conversation. So thank you for keeping us on our toes and making us think. Yeah. So, Andy, we're going to go through one news article. Do you want to hit us with this one? Sure. This one is coming to us from Plant Based News on July 9th, and it says Vegan Prisoners Offered Diet and Lifestyle Guide by Experts. So, let me read a little bit from that. The Vegan Society has created a comprehensive vegan guide for prisoners featuring expert advice on diet and lifestyle. The pamphlet, which provides practical information, is divided into two sections according to the society. One is for vegan prisoners about their rights, buying or requesting vegan products and resolving grievances, and one for prison staff, including nutritional advice, catering tips, and benefits and ingredients to avoid. It is part of the charity's commitment to help vegans in challenging situations, and it's supported by the International Vegan Rights Alliance, a leading authority on the subject of veganism and law. Heather Russell, dietitian at the Vegan Society, said, We hear from prison staff who require practical advice on catering for vegans and prisoners who are unsure about their rights, so we're delayed to be launching an all-encompassing resource. So I, I feel like when I read the headline, I was... I was hesitant about this, Andy, because like we've we've talked now. Re- I think I feel like recently more more so than than in earlier episodes. But there's been these like sprinkling of vegan related news stories that also have to do with prisons, and I feel like we're always uh, like very critical about these because I think it's a very nuanced issue that we're dealing with. But I have to say, not that I read the, not that I read the guides, but if it's basically just like if you are in prison and you are vegan, here are your rights like so that you know them. And then the other one being like, if you are the staff members, here's what you should do. I feel like that's a I feel like this is a positive thing. Yeah. You know, we we don't believe or at least I don't believe I mean to speak for you, Paul, but I assume you don't really necessarily <laughs> put a lot of faith in the prison industrial complex and have a lot Correct. of issues with <laughs> with uh, that whole system. So I, I think what I gather from this is that it is like what you just said. If you have, if you're going to prison soon, or you're already in prison, and you want to remain vegan while in prison, here is a guide on on how to do that and how to handle these things. Uh, I appreciate that. I also appreciate that there might be prisons that are struggling with how to provide these things for their their inmates and i appreciate that there's a guide for them as well i would also love to see a third part of this which is a guide for those who are supporting their loved ones which are in prison and sort of how you can advocate for them from the outside and you know from from what i have heard from from friends that have gone to prison for like animal liberation related activities it is a really terrifying thing to think that you're sort of put in this situation where you have almost no control over your surroundings or, or what your day-to-day activities are or what your food is going to be. And you're, you're used to having a lot of control over what it is that you eat. And all of a sudden that is stripped from you. 
And I've, you know, heard stories from people saying, yeah, basically all I could eat was was white rice and canned peaches, and that was it. And people that have gone on hunger strikes in order to get access to vegan food and prisoners that have had letter writing campaigns and, and phone in campaigns based around putting pressure on various prisons to offer vegan food to said inmates. So I think that I don't view this as supporting prisons so much as supporting those within that are trapped within the prison system. I think that if it was more focused on say convincing prisoners that they must go vegan, I think that would be a, uh, something that I'd be less likely to want to get behind because sure, of course we think everyone should go vegan, but obviously going vegan in prison is a monumental task in, in a lot of facilities. And, and we've even had guests on the show like Doomy Bay and Kelvin Young who have gone vegan in prison. So it's not like it's impossible, but I think that unless it's a group of prisoners advocating to other prisoners, it would feel kind of inappropriate and like a poor use of our resources and time to have, say, a bunch of privileged folks saying shaming people in prison for not necessarily being vegan. So this is not that from what I can tell. So I think that this is good. I think that, you know, if there was someone that wanted to engage in activities that might land them in prison for helping animals, knowing that there are resources out there for them so that they can maintain their ethics while in prison, I think is overall a good thing. Yeah. And, and in general, I feel like, cause it says it was supported by international vegan rights Alliance, a leading authority on the subject of veganism and law. And I feel like anyone that has that background in, in terms of veganism and any other social justice movement, I feel like anyone that has the law background and also connection to the movement that's able to put out information about like, this is what, like what you're going to be doing these are the laws surrounding it. This is what you, this, these are your rights. Like, I always feel like that's a good thing that people are aware of what their situation is or will be, or like their rights or the laws surrounding what they're doing. So I think that's really good. Yeah. So nice, nice resource. So let's know what your opinions are on this. Cause I'm sure there are varying opinions on whether this is something we should support or not. All right, so we'll leave that discussion there. And before we get into our film review for today, we just have to say we have no new Patreon subscribers because we're literally recording this less than 24 hours after the last episode we did. So thank you to everyone that has been contributing. And if you want to help out the podcast and make us more accessible and sustainable, just go to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo, and you can get early access to episodes. You can get merchandise. You can get a shout-out on the podcast. That's the site to go to, beardvegans.com. Excuse me, thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo. Almost pulled an Andy there. Forgot the the. <laughs> Don't people know that we are singular? We are we are the one and only the bearded vegans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that said, let's dive into our review of the ghosts in our machine. I feel like I'm a war photographer and I'm photographing history. I'm photographing changes in history right now in terms of animal rights and where it's going. Oh my God, look how he's holding that monkey. That's pretty sad. Really and as you see, just bringing that up, you see the conflict here because these images are so difficult. And, the and these issues are so important. What we can tell you is all three of us will try to get your stuff out there.
All right, so that was from the trailer of The Ghost in Our Machine. And this is a film that you can rent for viewing for $1.99 on Google Play, probably on some other platforms with uh, a higher or lower monetary requirement. So (laughs) seek it out and give this one a watch. Follow along with the review. All right, so the IMDb description, Paul, is a cinematic documentary that illuminates the lives of individual animals living within and rescued from the machine of our modern world. And this is a film that was directed by Liz Marshall, and it basically just follows photographer Joanne MacArthur, who is really quite a prolific photographer within the animal rights movement, documenting a number of different situations for animals, not just farmed animals, not just animals in testing, etc. And as I said, this came out about four or five years ago. And during our winter film review retro series there, we had asked people, hey, what other films do you want us to do? A few people asked us to do this film. So here we are doing it. Paul, (laughs) I don't think... Hope they still listen. (laughs) I don't think we're going to do any spoiler section i don't think there's really much to spoil in this film i agree so with that said we'll talk about our general thoughts then move into more specific nitpicks or or praise praises that we have for the film paul Mm -hmm. you had not seen this film before correct i have not so tell me what were your overall thoughts on the ghost in our machine so i'm gonna i'm gonna do that thing where you give a compliment and then you give a critique and then you give another compliment. So you sandwich, you sandwich your criticisms in compliments. Okay. My, uh, my, I was Andy very moved by the visuals in this movie. I think like it makes sense because, you know, the main character is a photographer and, and a very good photographer. I would, I would say, but even beyond that, some of the, the video shots that they got as well. I, like, I thought that the, fr- I don't know if framing is the right word. I'm no, I'm no cinematographer, but just like how everything was shot, I thought was very beautifully done. And, and I was moved to almost tears at, at a few different points in the movie. So I'm going to say that's one of my, I, I came out of this being like, wow, that was a beautiful and moving film. My, I think my main criticism of the movie is that there's not really any plot and there's not, there's a very vague plot and there's also no real roadmap as to use a term that Andy loves. There's no real roadmap to this film. And then also there's a couple instances and we'll get into this where I felt like they were contradicting everything else that they've said in the rest of the movie. Ooh, and and then I will finish up with a a another good thing that there was very many cute shots of animals and uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of great farm sanctuary shots and including Andy, do you remember that little pig that just is drinking that milk and then just they fall asleep in the milk and then wake up? How could I forget? Especially because you reposted it to your Instagram story, and I got to relive <laughs> that moment all over again. It was beautiful. But no, I, I think overall, I would say I was very moved by this film, and I probably... It, it is something that I'm, I am not upset that I had to watch. <laughs> the lowest possible <laughs> compliment. I'm not upset that I had to watch this. 
I said I was very moved by it. I think that's a pretty good compliment. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, like you, I thought that this was a visually stunning and masterful film. I thought the cinematography was was phenomenal. I would say that I think of all of the films that we have reviewed, the production value of this film is among the best. I think Racing Extinction obviously had a ton of that National Geographic money to talk about. <laughs> But this one, I would imagine on a significantly lower budget, managed to basically equal the awe that I felt with watching this film. It's, and I think that this will turn some people on and turn some people off from this film, but overall, it's kind of a slow and meditative film. And there are a lot of longer shots where you're just sort of watching animals existing within these horrible conditions. And. The first time I tried to watch this, actually, I, you know, I, Paul, I attempted to go see the New York City premiere of this on my birthday, and <laughs> I got the, the lug nuts on my tire on my van just started popping off, and so oh, no. my van started shaking, and I pulled over, and there's only like two lug nuts left on it, so I had to get a Jeez. tow, and I, I did not see this film in a theater. I wish that I had seen this in a theater because as someone with pretty severe ADD, it is one that I think many people, myself included, would be tempted to check their phone or or just sort of sort kind of wander away. So when I did first watch this film a number of years ago, there was some day where they're offering it to stream for free for like a, you know, a 48 hour period or something like that. And I started to watch the film and my brain started to wander and I, I, you know, after maybe 15 minutes or so, I, I moved to some other task with the the expectation that I would return. But by the time I returned, the free streaming period was over again. Oh, that's, rats. That's not a, it's not a dig at the film. That's a dig at my, my brain, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> brain dig. But I think that if this was a film that I saw in a theater, one, seeing this on a large screen would just be phenomenal. But two, you know, I love, I personally do love slow meditative films, but I have to be in the right mood to watch it. And in a theater, you're just sort of forced to watch the film. You're forced to not look at your phone unless you're a freaking jerk. And <laughs> you, you sort of have to take in the experience, let it wash over you, really, really meditate and, and think about the images that are in front of you. I think that would be the ideal situation to see this film. I just watched it sitting in a Whole Foods, and I think that that is not the ideal situation to watch this film. But I have to say, overall, I was quite taken by this film. I think that it's really powerful. It's very different than a lot of the documentaries. I think the way that they use the sound design, the soundtrack, the the visuals, the voiceovers, all of that combined, I thought was a very compelling watch. I... Don't know if I entirely agree with you that there wasn't a roadmap. Uh, yeah, there's not really a plot. I I guess the plot is almost Joanne attempting to get their photos published in various publications because that's sort of a thing that happens at least twice in the film and maybe maybe more if I'm you know not remembering correctly of this. I'm capturing these images. What am I going to do with them? There's this meeting early on where Joanne is meeting with whatever publishers, and they're like, well, it's really important cause, but it doesn't have a, a global following yet, or we're in a PG society, and your your images are too disturbing, even if they're not you know bloody or, or gory. And then 
you know, someone later on, I think it was Martin Rowe from Lantern offers to, to potentially publish a book of Joanne's photos. And I, you know, so, so I guess that's almost kind of the plot, but even without something that I harp on the roadmap all the time, but I found this film easy to follow. I found this film as essentially sort of slice of life. Here's, you know, a year in the life of Joanne MacArthur following this photographer around and seeing what what Joanne sees and, and capturing those things and, and learning about, you know, their existence. And it didn't bother me that there wasn't necessarily a plot to follow because it wasn't wasn't that type of film. You know, like we I complained about the lack of roadmap in a film that's a, a very kind of bland documentary with no style and very little substance and it just it needs that roadmap but needs the 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 one two three four easy to follow thing and this is a different type of film like the uh like the imdb plot description says it's a cinematic documentary which is almost kind of silly because like obviously documentaries are are cinematic in nature but (laughs) this one truly feels very cinematic in nature so it didn't I, I, I hear your point, Paul, but that didn't bother me nearly as much as it bothered you, which is surprising to me and shocking <laughs> to me. But overall, I thought it was a really powerful film. I would be careful who I recommend it to because it's not like a wham, bam, cowspiracy kind of like what's the, you know, what's the conspiracy happening and what's the cover up and who's hiding what and who's going to get got in the interview. It's not that type of film. It's one where you have to really think quietly and just sort of sit with the images that are being shown to you. Yeah. And I think that the movie, it kind of comes out, it comes out of the gate to use a non-vegan term, I guess comes out of the gate. The vegan gate. Like the vegan gate comes out of the vegan gate hard i think with the first one of the first scenes like right after no this might have even been the it's one of the first scenes where it's the main character the photographer doing like an undercover uh in like getting getting undercover photographs of a a fur farm like a fox farm and like that that was very like I thought that was very cowspiracy in the sense of like there's tension, you know, it's like they they can't get caught. It goes over like beforehand all the procedures. They're in those like camouflage, like uh, forest camouflage suits. Mm-hmm. And like it is very it's like sexy at the beginning. And then it and then it does get like there's nothing that real for the rest of the movie. There's nothing that really comes back to that level of I, I excitement is a weird word to use, but like there's no. There's none of that anymore. Now, I will say they do use, I think they effectively used music to create tension at certain moments that mm-hmm. made certain parts very dramatic for me. And and I do want to talk a little bit about the, like the, the way that they used the audio and visuals combined, I thought, Andy, was masterful, uh, specifically talking about when there's this this couple that's going to adopt a, a a dog that was previously used for like teaching purposes or research purposes and instead of showing a video of them meeting the dog it's just a compilation of the photos that the main character is taking at that meeting and then it's playing the audio of them meeting the dog underneath it mm-hmm. and i thought that that was like a phenomenal way of portraying this. And then they do that same technique a couple other times 
uh, one that I thought was another super effective one was when they were looking at zoos and aquariums, they were playing. I think they used some videos, but then some of the photographs that they were taking of like the different zoo animals in captivity and the, and the marine animals in the, in the aquariums. And then they just kind of had like the general loudness of the, 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 the humans in the zoos and aquariums. And I think the way that they did that was like, it was i think it was intended to make you feel like there's always this for these animals that are living here there's always this disturbance that's going on there's always these these loud humans that are that are always around them it's like they're always being watched they're always being bothered by these humans and i thought that that was again very effective yeah i thought the sound design overall in this film was was pretty phenomenal the the moment where i sort of had to write down great sound design exclamation point was when they do enter the vivisection lab and they really i'm assuming they really push the volume on the sounds of all the other dogs barking to the point when it was it was physically uncomfortable to listen to and i thought that it very subtly gets you to understand how horrific their daily existence is. So mm-hmm. very very similar to what they did with the the animals that were in captivity in the zoos and aquariums. And then I think it was there was a shot of a dolphin towards the end, right, when the sound of the camera clicking just kept repeating in the background. And Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, the, there's just like little touches like that that you're like, okay, this filmmaker really knows what they're doing. And this is this is a very well thought out and well constructed film. So I'd be really interested. At, we should research this. I bet Liz Marshall has put out something else since then, or is maybe on the verge of putting something else out. But this feels like I think one of the the better filmmakers within this movement at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So Andy, I want to transition to talk about something that we talk about in basically every review, and that's the use or non-use of graphic images uh-huh. in in a movie such as this. So you had already mentioned this that at the very beginning of the movie, when the photographers goes when the photographer goes to like whatever that magazine headquarters or publishing headquarters was to try to get the a, a story published about it and their response is that it's it's like too graphic or too disturbing for the general public. Now I think you already mentioned this, but most of the photographs, they're not graphic in the sense of like, it's not factory farm footage of, of the animals being slaughtered. It's just, I I think it's, it's more emotionally disturbing than it is like physically disturbing because it's like, you just see like, and in some of the shots there, Andy, there was a couple of shots of the pigs during the whole um, Toronto save movement yeah. part where there's like the, the truck, the the truck driving by the transportation truck. And there's a couple shots of the pigs that like, you can just see the, the fear in their eyes. And it is, it is incredibly disturbing on an, on an emotional level. But for the majority of the movie, there's no physically graphic images but then at the almost at the very end like with i feel like 20 minutes left in the movie there was some shots of like there was one shot of a it appeared to just be either in a slaughterhouse or in a butcher shop of like already 
butchered cows. And uh-huh. I thought that was incredibly disturbing, especially after not getting that footage for the entire time. But yeah. then there was at the very end, there was a shot, a, a couple of shots of the, the cows being killed. And I thought it was interesting that they chose not to include graphic images for 90% of the movie. And then right at the end, slip it in there. I almost wish that they hadn't because I feel like what this movie was trying to do did not necessitate the need for graphic images. I appreciated the graphic images in this and I appreciated the restraint that was used in how they did it. I liked that it was sort of a, a buildup to that thing and that you spend all this time with these animals and you get to know them as beings. And then you, you in theory feel for them, have empathy for them, have compassion for them. And then you see what, what really happens to them. And I think one of the shots was particularly powerful because it was an operation with the cows that they get restrained in whatever that machine is. And then someone shoots them in the head with the captive bolt and the other person slits their throat. And I noticed that, one of those cows, the throat got slit before the captive bolt happened, right? So they yeah, they did not too. get stunned. And obviously we know that that stunning does not work 100% of the time, but they did not get stunned until their throat was had already been slit for you know a second or two. So I think it was really powerful. I thought it was a restrained use, but I don't know. For, for me, it did work. All right. All right. I... I... I I was honestly most disturbed by the like the butcher shop or whatever that was that yeah. footage of like the cow that had already had all of their you know like skin removed. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely hard to watch, and I think this film does a good job of juxtaposing two different images. So you see the images of all these animals, and then you see the you know the so-called final product of their flesh just hanging up in a butcher shop. That technique was used as well in the the zoo with the, uh, I believe they were chimpanzees, and the film shows a shot of Joanne just sort of contemplating before before taking any photos and just sort of thinking, and then they cut to the face of a chimpanzee who was also thinking, and I think that that allows people to make the connections. I know that as humans, we probably make, make more of a connection to chimpanzees, generally speaking, because they're often viewed as like the closest to us or one of the closest animals to us. But I think it it allowed it, it it subtly I don't know what to say allowed, but subtly f- sort of forces us to as the the viewer to make that connection. I feel that Andy. S- speaking of chimpanzees, so when when it's kind of revealed that the author is or that the photographer is making this this picture book, this that makes it tr- trivialize it that this this Phot- photography uh, book <laughs> this photography book. They mentioned that it's the books being dedicated to Ron, the chimpanzee, Mm -hmm. who was a particular chimpanzee that had been rescued, but then had passed away. And the the photographer says he he was such an ambassador for animals used in research. And did that remind you of that? The other farm sanctuary movie that we watched, because that one of the. I think one of our greatest praises we gave to that that other Farm Sanctuary movie that it, the title is escaping me at the moment. Called to Rescue. Called to Rescue, thank you. That th- like they really put the the emphasis on how these animals, the animals were the ones saving other animals. It's like because these animals are here, they're able to educate 
the the humans that are coming to visit the sanctuaries and that's what's making the difference and these animals are ambassadors i felt like that's the only time that they mentioned that but in the in this movie but did you get that feeling at any other at any other points in this movie that it was like the animals that are that are doing that that we owe the credit to kind of well, speaking of credits, Paul, I don't know if you watch the closing credits, but they actually do give credits to the non-human animals. Oh, Andy, I always watch. I, I, <laughs> I feel like I pay more attention. Like I'm when I watch the credits to these movies, I'm like pausing and rewinding and enhancing and zooming in. I, I always want to be like, who are they thanking in these movies? And like, who, who? Cause I don't know. I feel like it, it gives me an uh, more of an inclination about some of the views of the people creating the movie. But I did notice, yeah, they, they spent a lot of the time crediting all the animals that they did either photograph or that were in the movie, which I thought was cool. I should never, I should never doubt you, Paul, to know that you're going to watch the credits. <laughs> but to, to answer your, your question, Paul, uh, I guess not. I mean, the film essentially is sort of posing Joanne as the savior of these animals. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I, when you say it like that, I feel like it makes Joanne seem more cocky about it than I think they actually are. Which I did not get a sense that they were they were cocky. But you're right. I I think the movie like it. There's one quote at the beginning of the movie that says like a photo can do more damage to the industry than a direct action. So yeah. I do think they they're definitely putting forward the idea that the work that Joanne is doing is going to be impactful and influential. I don't think Joanne is like full of themselves or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't mean to say the savior thing in, in a demeaning way, but because, yeah, cause it can easily come off that way. I don't think like you're saying, I don't think that it's a super cocky thing necessarily, but the film does kind of, like you said, there's that quote that's, you know, one one photograph can can do so much. I said quote and then not said the actual quote. But, you know, you do have <laughs> Joanne talking about saying when I'm there, I wish that I could liberate all these animals, but that won't save them. My photography is what will be what actually saves them. So it does, you know, it, for as much as I love this film, as much as I love Joanne's work, it, the film does kind of put humans in the places we're the ones that are going to save these animals. And it does. It brings that back at the end, essentially saying that, you know, we have to be working tirelessly to help these animals. I, it's obviously foolish to say the animals are going to just save themselves without a single bit of help from their allies, which are us, the humans, the vegans, and the activists. So, I don't know. I think, I think the film has a difficult task to, to complete by portraying that balance. That's interesting that you put it like that because another note that I had written down was that I felt for Joanne because when they're taking the photographs, I think they mentioned one time it's like it's hard because they know they're not there to liberate the animals. So like they know they have to leave the animals eventually and that's traumatizing because it's like they're not like feeling like you're not doing the most that you can possibly be doing. And I... I like empathized with that feeling, but from what you're just saying, it makes me think like, oh, maybe the movie is maybe that part, that aspect of it is kind of playing too much to the human aspect of, of this situation and not the animals that are there. Like, I mean, I can certainly empathize with it and I don't think that's a bad thing in itself, but it does take the focus slightly off of the animals 
Yeah, but I mean, I think you could probably argue that the film needs a central character for for us viewers, us human viewers, to relate to. So framing it through the journey of Joanne gives the film that that person for us to focus on. And I think that through Joanne's inclusion in the film, we do get a sense of how horrific this is, both in terms of seeing it visually, but also hearing Joanne talk about it. Because, you know, early on in the film, Joanne says, I feel like I'm a war photographer, says things like it's an emergency for these animals. And during that first interview with some publisher or some that's like advocating to get the work published, they they ask Joanne, do you sleep well at night? And Joanne responds, I have PTSD and a lot of nightmares. So I think that there is value in having a central human character. And even having a central human character, I felt like, it felt like the majority of the film was just shots of animals. Andy, I don't mean to correct you, but in that first scene, the the person that's working at the magazine place or the, the publishing place that I feel like maybe Joanne has met for the first time, the person just flat out says, do you have PTSD? Which I felt like is a very insensitive thing to just flat out ask someone that you've just met. Yeah. It's almost like asking someone that came back from war being like, so have you killed somebody? Yeah, yeah. That's besides the point. Your point still still remains. Well, speaking of that meeting, uh, I know this is not like the main point of the film, but it was really kind of infuriating watching so many men step over her words. Like, I don't know if you noticed that in so many, especially with like the publisher type people, like men that have a little more power and specifically have, you know, power over over Joanne in terms of I could publish your work or not. They constantly were cutting Joanne off and like mm-hmm. asserting their their opinions on things, like asking how many animals are killed, and then Joanne starts to respond, and then the the guy was like billions, you know. It's like, oh, oh, so if you knew the answer, why did you ask the question? Or I don't know that that happened a bunch, and I know that the 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 main point of the film was not to show how hard it was for Joanne to get these images published, but if there was anything close to a plot, it would be that, and just sort of seeing that very subtle struggle and those sort of microaggressions happening was was really frustrating just watching it happen again and again and again with with several men throughout the film and like watching Joanne like responding to all of their questioning and stuff so enthusiastically and like cheerfully almost i i had to be like oh this is probably like so annoying and aggravating on the inside but you have to because these are the people that you're like well these are the people that are gonna either make or break this thing happening so like you have to be nice to them and watching them just kind of be dicks and i was like oh god that's aggravating yeah it was very frustrating to watch very frustrating to watch for sure andy can i tell you my main critique of this movie please this movie this movie this cinematic documentary paul so temple grandin has mm-hmm. been in another movie that we've watched correct yeah yeah okay yeah continue cuz i think i'm i'm there with you on this one so th- so the whole movie so here's if i had to give you a roadmap of the movie andy it would be this Joanne goes in trying to get the, Joanne goes into the mink farm. Or I'm sorry, the the fox farm. Gets some photographs. Shows these photographs to the magazine people. Uh, Joanne goes to a farm sanctuary. Spends a lot of time there. Uh, meets Maggie the dog. Talks about animal testing. Goes to zoos aquariums. Talks about the book a little bit more. Does the Toronto pig save scene. 
And then there's just at the very end of the movie, there's just this, this, the only other like, because there's a few other times in the movie at the very beginning, at the very end, where there's just kind of these voices that are talking and they are like people that have been in other animal documentaries but it's just kind of like a voice talking giving like a a a couple sentence quote and then their voice goes away and someone else's voice comes in but Mm. for some reason there's just this extended temple grandin scene i don't believe she's actually in the movie like i don't think she's actually um her her face is not in the movie but she gives it like a like an overdub of just a bunch of scenes about ethical ways to kill animals question mark so I recognize Temple's voice in the the very beginning of the film, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And basically I gathered that what the film at that point was doing was like, here's a variety of viewpoints about animals. But I felt like they were almost all pro-animal except for Temple's, which which was something along the lines of animals have emotions, but they're not people. You know, it's it's not like they're going to fly to the moon. Something, some quote along those lines. And I assume that was just sort of be like, Here's the the climate of how people feel about animals. And then Temple is given this this large platform towards the end of the film. And right after, I think that's when they actually show the actual slaughter footage. So I'm assuming the language of the film is essentially providing a rebuttal to what Temple is saying. Because the filmmaker knows people are going to bring up, well, what about humane ways to do this? And then they, they give Temple a chance to say, well, this is how we do it. And we do the curved ramps and all of this stuff. And then you see the slaughter and you're still thinking that's horrible, even under these humane conditions. And at one point, Joanne does say something. I think it was about like the dairy when essentially Joanne says, these are the organic humanely raised. I'm trying to show the industry of it on all levels. So basically showing how just it's still like this industrial turning animals these sentient beings into objects is happening on every level even on like the smaller local farms so yeah i don't know i i guess i guess it just feels like there wasn't enough of a rebuttal of what temple was saying or like an obvious enough rebuttal of what temple was saying that it did feel like the film like the average viewer especially if they're not a vegan, they could misconstrue that as an endorsement of what Temple was saying. Andy, I'm I'm not the average viewer, I would say, and that's what I thought that they were doing in that movie and I or in that scene and I was like, why are they doing this? Because I think I could be wrong, but I think the thing about humanely raised and dairy farms and stuff. I think that was with the clueless magazine guy in the scene before. Mm -hmm. So that happens before. Like, I, I don't know. Like not much happened after the temple granted thing. That's almost like that was like the culminating scene of the entire movie. And it like the scene that's supposed to be like the conclusionary long scene, putting everything together. And right off the bat, temple says, like I believe that there's an ethical way to eat animals and I think that the average viewer is going to see that scene because it is such a long scene and it's like I I don't think there was a net there it was needed to like show all the diagrams of like this supposed because basically what Temple's thing is is that she she developed a a specific like architecture for a slaughterhouse that supposedly 
is the least traumatic for cows. That's what I think she's known for, I, I would say, is creating this thing. But it goes like extensively through like, oh, and this is why it's set up like this. This is why there's the curved ramps. This is why these are a specific height. It like literally shows the blueprint of the, the, the slaughterhouses. Yeah. And it's showing all these things. And to me, that signifies that they were the movie is like, oh, this is important enough for us to have this extended scene and extended explanation about. And Andy... <laughs> Temple Grandin does get a special thanks in the credit under the under the like we would like to give a special thanks to she does get a special thanks in there. Now I know obviously she is a part of this movie and maybe they just wanted to give special thanks to everyone that was in the movie but I don't know to me it I know that that's I like I hope that that's not what they were doing but to me it read like an endorsement of that ideology. Yeah, I think it was just overall an odd thing to include temple grandin because if they were doing the thing that is here's the other opinion and here's our rebuttal this was as far as i can remember the only time that they actually did that and you're right given the prominent placement at the end when we're sort of reaching conclusions of this whole journey this this roadmapless journey it does feel like they're essentially saying like this is the thing that's good but you know that that's that can't possibly be what Joanne uh, agrees with and thinks is like the way forward. So it just seems like such a bizarre thing to include, especially given that closing quote, which I thought was great, which is essentially, you know, the animals, they, they don't have, uh, I should have written it down, but it was essentially like, you know, they, they don't need rights given to them. They already have those rights just by virtue of being who they are, by being these sentient beings that, that, that have worth just by existing. And I believe that was the last quote that we hear. And I was just like, yes, that is such a good quote. And that brings it home to rights. It's not just about treatment. It's not just about cruelty. It's about treating them as objects. But then they give such extensive screen time to Temple Grandin that it, it definitely undercuts that a little bit. Or it'll make people think that this final quote works in unison or in concert with all the Temple Grandin stuff, making it think that, oh, Temple Grandin's work does honor the the inherent rights of these animals and isn't treating them as objects, even though it is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And there was one other part that was sending a mixed message to me. So when the credits are rolling... Every every like few seconds of credits, it intersperses the credits with just like a random fact about animals, like factory farming or something like that. And one of the facts is, I wrote it down, there are an estimated 10,000 to 12,000 zoos and wild animal displays in the world. Approximately 5% are accredited by professional associations. Andy, to me, that yeah. says the problem is that they are not accredited and not the problem is that they exist at all. Yeah, that also stood out to me and was kind of confusing. So I, I don't know. I thought that that was like a that and then the Temple Grandin thing were just they were just a little off to me. It made me it didn't make me question what the movie was trying to get across, but it made me like question why they included those those things. Yeah, I think that it would be confusing. I think the th the thing in the credits, less people will even stick around to watch the credits, but 
Yeah, I think those there's a couple of things that kind of undercut the overall point that they were trying to make, and I'd be I'd be curious to hear from the the filmmaker why those things were included. Maybe we'll get an email. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I did like in the credits the the thing that said the following companies would not be interviewed, and it listed like <laughs> SeaWorld and like all these different fur farms and stuff like that. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that Jerks. was good. That's why it was not like a cowspiracy because they could not get a single interview. <laughs> <laughs> Do you got anything else, Andy? Any good? Any good parts? Any bad parts? I guess the last thing that I'll say is that I I enjoyed that they had a discussion at Farm Sanctuary about the importance of sanctuaries, and they they brought up that some people view them as a waste of money, but then reflected on how they act as the animals are allowed to be the ambassadors. I don't think they use those words exactly, but sort of pointed out how we're not a farming culture, we're not a farming society anymore, so people are even further removed from the animals that are used in our food production system than ever before. So I did like that. I I don't think we need to get into it too much just because we had a lengthy discussion about that during the called to Rescue review, but I appreciate that they they got that in there as well. You know what I appreciated, Andy, in that farm sanctuary segment? The literal pig in a blanket. (laughs) Adorable. <laughs> Very adorable. I, I guess with that, Paul, we'll we'll wrap it up. I think that our you know, our usual closing thoughts. Who is this for? Would you recommend it to anybody? I think that I'm gonna say this, Andy. I was as I as I stated at the top, I was moved by this film and it honestly it moved me to want to do more. And for that reason, maybe this film is for uh, animal advocates. If other people would have the same reaction as I did. Yeah, yeah. I I would recommend this film. And I agree with your assessment that this would be a good one for animal advocates to watch. I think it would be a good one for non-vegans to watch. But as I said in the beginning of this review... I do think I would be selective about who I recommend it to. Like, I would want to know the general taste, the like the film taste of someone. And that if there's someone that only wants to watch like blockbuster type action films or something, this might not be the film that I recommend to them. But if it's someone that has similar film taste to, to what I do, of which I have, of course, many friends like that, then it would be someone that I would recommend it to, especially if they were not vegan, because maybe they would get something out of the the journey that this film takes them on. Um, I guess speaking of journey and and circling back to Roadmap, I did like the order of events that they did. I liked that they started with the fur because I think that, you know, we, we can relate to these cute animals used for fur more than a lot of humans can relate to cows. So I appreciate that it was about half an hour of that. You know, there's a few shots of the cows and the pigs in the beginning, but for the most part, it was half an hour of animals used in fur facilities before they moved to the farmed animals. And I did appreciate that. And then they then they brought the beagles so people could relate to the dogs that they love in their home so much. So I did like the, the overall layout of the film. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. So you can send your thoughts into us just by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. And we would love to know what you have to say about it. Also, we would love to have other suggestions for animal rights films, whether it's directly related to animal rights or veganism or like a Ferdinand situation in which maybe there's a film with some animal rights themes. 
like uh, War for the Planet of the Apes or something like that, let us know what films you want us to do when we do future retro film reviews. Yeah, and and I don't know if we said it already, but you can check out this film at theghostsinourmachine.com. Don't type in Ghost in the Shell like I did. Different movie. All right, Andy, so I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Paul, uh, you know something I didn't like about this film? Mm-hmm. It was that there was no one saying the, the titular line. There was no one saying, and these are the ghosts in our machine. And so it, <laughs> yeah. had me, it, it left me wondering, what are the ghosts in our machine? And I, I did some, some researching. I went deep on the forums, and I found some really compelling fan theories. And they have screenshots you know, put together, and they're making charts and graphs and these long YouTube videos <laughs> explaining it. Um, my, the most popular theory is that the ghosts in our machine is referring to the following seven words. We are the Bearded Beacons, signing off. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardvegans.com. Ugh. I'm so full of phlegm. I'd be cured. I'd be cured. Anyone that has the law background, but also connection to the music, music, and all. You get a, a whitewashing Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> and I was like, "There's no animal themes in this at all." I watched the whole two and a half hour long film, and I couldn't decide <laughs> why Andy I couldn't figure out why Andy wanted me to watch this. <laughs> Temple Grandin was in the end, but that, that was a that was a shock as well. <laughs>